Well, thank you all for uh, coming today. My name is John Maniscalco. I'm the Director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute. And the uh, topic of discussion today is how the uh, advent of self-driving cars will affect transportation policy in the future. Um, until recently, the notion of uh, driverless cars uh, had always, always had a sci science fiction ring to it. Um, but we've reached such a level of uh, technological advancement that the question is not if we will one day have driverless cars, but when we will have driverless cars. Um, and this advancement comes with the promise of sa safer, faster, and less stressful commutes. Uh, but it also comes with the potential for dramatic transportation policy changes, such as the prospect of the end of transit as we know it. And to discuss further the uh, future transportation uh, future of transportation planning and regulation. Uh, we have a distinguished panel, which I'll introduce now. Randall O'Toole will be up first. He is a uh, Cato Institute senior fellow who works on urban growth, public land, and transportation issues. His analysis of urban land use and transportation issues has influenced decisions in cities across the country. He travels extensively and has spoken about free market environmental issues in dozens of cities. O'Toole was educated in forestry at Oregon State University and in economics at the University of Oregon. Mark Scribner will be up next. He's a fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute and focuses on transportation, land use, and telecommunications policy issues. He's appeared on Fox Business and also written for numerous publications, including USA Today, The Washington Post, Forbes, and National Review. Prior to joining CEI, he worked uh, in the Congress Department, the Federal News Service. He received his undergraduate degree in economics and philosophy from George Washington University. Finally, we'll have Adam Thier, uh, who is a senior research fellow with the Technologi Technology Policy Program at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. He specializes in technology, media, internet, and free speech policies with a particular focus on online safety and digital privacy. His writings have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, The Economist, The Washington Post, The Atlantic, and Forbes. He received his MA in International Business Management and Trade Theory at the University of Maryland and his BA in Journalism and Political Philosophy at Indiana University. And with that, I will turn it over to Randall. Thank you, John. Well, we are uh, <coughs> graciously endowed with this magnificent screen over your right-hand shoulder. And so I suggest you all turn your chairs that way because you need to look at the screen rather than at me. Um, as, a, as it happens, I hate driving, so I might be just a little bit overly eager to see driverless cars because uh, uh, I can see that automobiles are a very efficient and effective and convenient form of transportation. I just don't like to be behind the wheel of them. Uh, driverless cars are definitely technologically feasible. The Google has driven its driverless cars more than 700,000 miles in California. They've figured out how to deal with all kinds of situations, including wildlife running across the road, pedestrians, bicycles, and so on and so forth. Uh, California and Nevada have offered uh, the opportunity for companies to license experimental self-driving vehicles, and four companies have uh, taken them up on that offer, Mercedes, Audi, Continental, and, and Google. And a number of other companies, including GM and Ford and several others, have uh, engaged in driverless car research, and they all have driverless car prototypes uh, and uh, are using them in various ways. Uh, this is one of my favorite videos because uh, it demonstrates what 
gives you an idea of what driverless cars will do, how they'll change things in the future. Volkswagen calls this their valet parking car, but basically the car has a database of all available parking places in it. So you go to work, you go to a hotel or a restaurant, and you tell your car, go park yourself. And so it drives around until it finds a vacant parking place, and then it parks itself in that parking place. Now you might not want it to go park itself. You might want to go change, have it go change the oil, or have it go to home and pick up your kids and take them to school, or you might want to have it go car share, uh, make some money for yourself, use Uber or some other app and have it car share for you. Uh, but uh, whenever you're done with work or whatever you're doing, you can just pull out your smartphone, which has a GPS on it, and you open up the right app and you say, car come, and the car will hone in on your GPS and come and pick you up. Uh, <clears throat> this is Google's this is a car view of what it looks like when it's going down the street and it finds things like traffic cones indicating a detour or a bicyclist who is signaling that he's turning, he or she are turning left or an obstacle in the road or whatever. So uh, <clears throat> all of these things have been figured out. Uh, Google and other companies have figured out how to deal with all of these things. And Google says that by 2017, that's going to have the software available to do uh, handle all of these kinds of situations for self-driving cars. By 2020, a number of manufacturers, including Nissan, have promised to have self-driving cars on the market. Now, that gap between 2017 and 2020 might be filled by people taking cars and uh, turning them into self-driving cars. There's a company now that says that they'll take your Audi A8 and turn it into a self-driving car next year for $10,000. By 2030, cars with no human-driven options will be on the market. In other words, no steering wheel, no accelerator or brake pedals, uh, just a car that you say where you want to go and it takes you there. And I expect that by 2040, uh, states will start closing many roads to human-driven cars as uh, safety hazards. And soon after that, uh, human-driven cars will be kind of like horseback riding today. It'll be something we do for entertainment uh, in limited areas, not something we do regularly. Today, you can buy cars that have a lot of self-driving capabilities in them. They can sense the car in front of you and maintain a fixed, safe distance behind that car. They can uh, sense the lanes on the stripes on the roads and drive in for you in this, between those stripes. They can sense if a car is, uh, you're in their blind spot and they're pulling into your lane and so your car will break. Or if you're pulling into a lane and somebody's in your blind spot, your car will break or do whatever it takes to avoid a collision. Turning this kind of a car, which is available at moderate prices today, the cheapest one I've found is the Subaru Impreza, for about $26,000. Turning this car into a driverless car will basically be a software upgrade with the addition of a, a few uh, possible sensors. Now the advantages of driverless cars are tremendous. Uh, the biggest one, one of the biggest ones is that because computers have faster reflexes than humans, uh, driverless cars will double, triple, possibly quadruple the capacity of our roads. So a lot of congestion will go away. The second one is that only about two out of three Americans have a driver's license. So driverless cars will offer the same kind of mobility to non-licensed driver's uh, operators as uh, to licensed operators. So we'll have a, a huge expansion of mobility. You can be nine years old or 90 years old. 
I look forward to being able to put my dogs in the car and send them to the vet without me accompanying them. Uh, here's Google's pod car that has no steering wheel. Google is planning to make a, a few hundred of these and test them in California. Uh, has no, <clears throat> the only driver control is a button. So you tell the driver the car where you want to go and you press the button. This gentleman is blind and he's happily driving his Google pod car. Now this is going to change the way we think about travel. Right now surveys show that half of all Americans limit the amount of travel they do, not because of the co dollar cost, but because of the time cost. And if you can travel by car and be productive, be entertained, watch movies, surf the internet, uh, play Parcheesi with your kids, uh, engage in dog training with your pets, uh, suddenly you could live hours away from work and not really mind the long commute. Uh, we'll see a, a wave of new exurbanization as people move out to distant, more and more distant locations to uh, 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 commute to and from. Uh, we'll probably see an increase in car sharing. Some people think we'll see an, a complete end to private car ownership and that all cars will be shared. I'm skeptical of that, but I'm sure we'll see an increase of car sharing, which means a lot of people will uh, not bother to own a car but they'll still travel by car quite a bit. Now that's going to change the calculus of, of how we drive because right now if you own a car and you decide to travel an extra mile, that's going to add a, f a few cents because you're only going to calculate the variable cost of driving when you already own the car and you want to drive down the street to the store or to a uh, movie or whatever. And the variable costs of driving are about a third of the total cost. So your marginal cost is only a third of the real cost. If you're car sharing, though, you're going to have to pay the average cost, which means essentially the cost of uh, an additional trip is triple what it is that if you own your own car. So some people think that with increased car sharing, we're going to see less driving. On the other hand, I think a lot of people are going to say, hey, if I increase, if I don't have a car and I car share, suddenly my cost is tripling. So uh, they're going to ignore that capital cost and just go ahead and think about the variable cost and still want to own a car anyway. I think that's going to be a major reason why car sharing is not going to be as dominant as some people think it will be. So those are all personal considerations, but as far as public policy goes, we have to look at some major programs and see how our is, uh, self-driving car is going to affect these programs. One of the big ones is public transit. We spend $40 billion a year subsidizing public transit in this country, uh, and those subsidies haven't done very much as far as uh, getting cars off the road or saving energy or doing other things. About 32% of commuters in New York City take transit to work, but in most American urban areas, uh, I'm sorry, about 32% of commuters in the New York urban area, as opposed to New York City, take transit to work. Most people in most urban areas uh, don't rely on transit. In fact, transit is used by only 1 or 2% of people, uh, of commuters in most urban areas in the country. Uh, since 1970, we have pumped in about almost a trillion dollars into the nation's transit systems, and per capita transit usage has fallen from about 50 trips per person per year to about 40 trips per person per year. So all of this money we've used subsidizing transit hasn't 
gotten people out of their cars, hasn't increased transit ridership. One of the interesting statistics is uh, originally when we started subsidizing public transit 40 years ago, uh, we said, well, we have to do this to provide mobility for people who don't have cars. Well, today, only about 4.5% of workers in the United States live in households without cars. How do they get to work? Well, 21% of them drive alone to work. How do they do that if they live in a household without a car? Well, maybe they car share. Maybe they use an employer's car. Maybe they borrow a neighbor's car. I don't know, but uh, only 41% of people who live in households without cars take transit to work. What that says is that transit isn't even important to people who don't, to most people who don't have cars, much less people who do have cars. If you think transit is important for low-income people, it turns out the highest rate of transit commuting is in people who earn $75,000 a year or more. So we're subsidizing the rich when we subsidize transit. If you think transit saves energy, it turns out the average car on the road, including SUVs and pickups, uses about 3,400 British thermal units, BTUs per passenger mile. Transit uses about 3,200, a very slight savings. If you really want to save energy, you get people into more fuel-efficient cars like a Toyota Prius or other really fuel-efficient cars that uh, will save a lot more energy than getting people out of a uh, 3,400 BTU car under a 3,200 BTU transit. Plus, transit is very, very expensive. Now, we subsidize highways in this country. Most of the subsidies are provided by cities and counties, not by federal and state governments. Those subsidies, however, are counted by the fact that we use the highways a lot. So the subsidies act, work out to an average of about a penny or a penny and a half per passenger mile. By comparison, subsidies to transit are about 75 cents a passenger mile. So the transit subsidies are much greater, almost 100 times greater, 50 to 100 times greater than highway subsidies. That means that once we get more self-driving cars and, and their car sharing, it'll be a lot cheaper to put people in car sharing vehicles than it will be to put them on transit, even if you account for the fact that whoever is sharing the cars is going to want to earn a profit for their car. Uh, it might be 40 cents a passenger mile as opposed to a dollar on transit. Now we can look at American cities and try to say, well, what's this going to do? What's all this car sharing, what's self-driving cars going to do to urban transit? And we have to start with Manhattan or New York City because New York is the uh, really the exception to the rules of American cities. I like to say there's two kinds of American cities. There's New York and there's everything else. 40% of all transit ridership takes place in the New York urban area. 40% of all of it in the country. And that's because the south end of Manhattan Island has 2 million jobs concentrated in about 7 square miles. More than 3 out of 4 of those people take transit to work. Even though self-driving cars will uh, increase the capacity of our roads. There is no way that the streets of Manhattan could accommodate uh, th four times as many cars taking people to work to two million jobs. So transit will still be a viable proposition in New York City. Uh, the next most dense uh, job concentration in the United States is the Chicago Loop, which has 500,000 jobs and almost 60% of them take transit to work. I don't think, even though self-driving cars will make uh, 
roads a lot less congested. I don't think the Chicago Loop could stand to have twice, more than twice as many people take cars to work uh, with self-driving cars. So transit will still be viable in Chicago. Washington, D.C. has 380,000 jobs downtown. A little less than half take transit to work. By the same logic, transit will probably still be viable here. San Francisco, 300,000 jobs, half take transit to work. Boston, 250,000 jobs, half take transit to work. Philadelphia, 240,000 jobs, almost half take transit to work. All of these places, we're still going to have transit as a viable uh, system and probably could even be made profitable if we weren't so intent on losing money. But then we start getting into more marginal areas. Downtown Seattle has only 160,000 jobs and only about a third of them take transit to work. I don't see that transit is going to make sense when you're competing against self-driving cars in a place like that. Atlanta has 173,000 jobs but only in, in downtown, but only 14% take transit to work. Similarly, Houston, 170,000 jobs, only 13% take transit to work. There's no way that transit is going to be able to compete against self-driving cars uh, and, and car sharing at that time. So what it comes down to, we can look at Denver, we can look at a lot of other cities. What it comes down to is that self-driving cars are going to re completely replace transit everywhere in the country, except for places that have really, really intense concentrations of jobs, and transit currently carries half or more of the, the commuters to those places to work. That means really just five places, New York, Chicago, Washington, San Francisco, Boston, and maybe Philadelphia and Seattle. Other than that, I don't see that transit has a chance anywhere. And that means we need to completely shift our thinking about what, where is transit gonna go in the next 20 years? It means we should stop thinking about building long-term transit projects like light rail and heavy rail and commuter rail and think about providing bus service for the short term and then planning on f figuring out a way to phase it out as self-driving cars come in and perhaps providing transportation vouchers for low-income people so that they can still have mobility uh, without subsidizing everybody else the way we do with transit today. Uh, in order to do this kind of planning, we have to think ahead. And the uh, Congress requires every metropolitan planning organization in the country to write long-range, at least 20-year regional transportation plans. A few years ago, I sat down and reviewed the regional transportation plans for the 70 largest urban areas in the country and discovered that about half of them were living in fantasy land. Uh, they had no real serious intention of looking at what the future was going to be like, and instead they looked at what the future, what future they wanted to be like. A good example was this plan for Sacramento. And the plan openly admitted that uh, the, the plans that they had written for the past 25 years had all flopped. They had written plans to try to get people out of their cars and onto transit. They had tried to stop urban sprawl and get people to live in more compact areas. They had tried to actively discourage driving by not deliberately not building any roads and allowing the roads to become more congested. And the result was nothing. People still continued to drive. The region still continued to sprawl. Having learned that lesson, what was the plan? The new plan was to continue the same old plan. 
And I see this over and over again. They start out with the assumption that getting people out of their cars is the solution to every problem. And the way to get them out of their cars is to spend a lot of money on transit and to build high density developments. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work in Portland. It doesn't work in San Francisco. It doesn't work anywhere. Uh, and we should know that's true because the research shows and uh, uh, an economist named David Brownstone at the University of California did a research study for a literature review for the Transportation Research Board, and he found that the link between transportation and land use planning is too small to be useful to try to discourage driving, to try to save energy, to try to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So we know this doesn't work, and yet half the plans, planners in the country are still intent on doing it in their metropolitan areas. Now, what happens when we introduce self-driving cars into the equation? Well, it turns out not a single regional transportation plan has taken self-driving cars into account. In fact, not a single one has even mentioned the possibility that self-driving cars will be, are on the horizon. Uh, a few of the planners have, have said, well, gee, we, we can't even predict what self-driving cars are going to do. Are they going to increase driving because more people are going to want to drive? Or are they going to reduce driving because more people are going to car share and they're going to have to pay the average cost of driving instead of the, the, uh, the marginal cost? We don't know, so we're just going to pretend they're not there and we're going to build uh, 19th century transportation instead. And so we see city after city planning streetcars instead of planning for self-driving cars. What they should be doing is providing what in the technology sector they call dumb infrastructure. That means infrastructure that just provides a platform for communication, or in this case a platform for transportation, and then let the users decide uh, how they're going to use that platform. Uh, an example uh, in uh, electronics of smart and dumb infrastructure is the, the Internet versus the French Minitel system. The French had an advanced system years before we had the internet called Minitel, and the Minitel system gave everybody in France a dumb terminal and then provided smart infrastructure to communicate using this dumb terminal. And you could do things like buy plane tickets, buy movie, make movie reservations, do whatever you wanted to do with it. It worked like the internet except for all the smarts was in the infrastructure. And the problem was the government couldn't keep up with the infrastructure and they eventually scrapped the system and adopted the internet like we have, which has dumb infrastructure because all the smarts are in our computers, not in the infrastructure. That means the idea that we should have smart infrastructure out there T communicating to vehicles, telling them, oh, the light's red, or there's an accident up ahead, or there's a delay up ahead, that kind of smart infrastructure we can't rely on. And uh, the Google and the other manufacturers of uh, self-driving cars are not planning to rely on that. Instead, they want dumb infrastructure. They want the, the states to keep the lanes properly striped and, and the uh, signs properly uh, 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 consistently done so that they can find things. Rail transit is another example of smart infrastructure. The trains go where the rails go rather than uh, where somebody is steering them, but they only go where the rails go. As soon as the rails run out, the trains stop. So we need smart infrastructure or dumb infrastructure and smart cars, not smart infrastructure and, and uh, dumb users. So <clears throat> in short, I would say we need to, instead of trying to think about long-range transportation plans, we should scrap the long-range transportation planning requirement in the law. 
uh, regions and states to try to solve today's problems today without encumbering the future with heavy debts or costly infrastructure, smart infrastructure that they can't afford to maintain. They should build and maintain dumb infrastructure. They shouldn't mandate, for example, vehicle to vehicle or vehicle to uh, infrastructure communications, which the National Transportation uh, Highway Traffic Safety Administration wants to do. And uh, they'll be, have more about that from our next speaker. Thank you. And I'll even start your show for you. Well, thank you, Randall, and thank you all for being here. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, regulation and specifically the threats to innovation from regulation. Um, let's begin with an overview so you'll have an idea of where I'm going to go. I'm going to start with talking about uh, recent legislative and regulatory developments at the federal and state levels. Uh, then I'll go on and have a short discussion uh, about sort of uh, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and kind of our general safety regulatory philosophy as it's existed for the past several decades. Then I'll give some specific examples, uh, which unfortunately already exist, about how not to regulate automated vehicles going forward. And then uh, I'll, I'll close with some principles for sound public policy. Uh, we have four states plus the District of Columbia that have enacted legislation that uh, specifically recognizes the legality of automated vehicles. Uh, and these states in yellow are considering similar legislation. As far as state regulations, uh, Nevada was first out of the gate in 2012. Um, California has released part one of their rules. Uh, these apply to manufacturer testing, and I'll go into more detail about uh, California's because there are some problems. And then the District of Columbia uh, has proposed rules in uh, April of this year, uh, and I'll also go into more detail because there are some more problems there. So no regulations yet at the federal level. NHTSA did issue a preliminary statement of policy back in May 2013. Uh, what that policy statement basically said was states, uh, cool your jets, don't do anything crazy on the legislative and regulatory fronts uh, before we act. Uh, and then it also uh, laid out definitions of automation, and I'll show you those in a second. Um, so while these aren't automation specific, there are two recent uh, regulatory developments at the federal level that I think we should take a look at because I think they will impact automated vehicles going forward, depending on, on how these proceedings go. So in March 2014, there was a petition uh, to NHTSA from Tesla Motors regarding a current federal motor vehicle safety standard. And then in, uh, in August, NHTSA issued an advance notice of proposed rulemaking on vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle communications, as, as Randall mentioned. So here are the levels of automation. Level zero is pretty easy. That's no automation. That's what you think of as a traditional automobile. You're in control. Uh, level four is full self-driving. That's where we want to go. Uh, that's where the, the driver has no responsibility and perhaps uh, not even an ability to retake manual control at any point. Uh, these levels in between, one through three, uh, we already have levels one and two on the road, uh, or at least they're available to consumers in some forms, limited forms. Uh, level one, an example, would be adaptive cruise control. Uh, level two is basically combining um, one or more level one functions to act in unison. So that would be uh, something like uh, Mercedes uh, traffic jam assist, where if you're moving in congested low-speed traffic, it'll take over, it'll steer, it'll brake, it'll accelerate at low speeds. 
And then level three is that uh, the sort of the, you've probably seen the video, well, what Randall showed, sort of the outfitted uh, Toyota Priuses that Google was initially testing. Uh, there's still a steering wheel in there. There's still brakes. There's still uh, accelerator pedals. Um, and we're likely to see those before level four, but uh, based on where Google is going, they're really, really pushing for level four. So uh, before I get to some of the specifics, uh, I want to I wanna talk about NHTSA. Um, I'm not really a fan of, of what NHTSA's done over the past 40 years, and it, this, has no, this is nothing personal against the fine people who work at NHTSA. There's some very, uh, very bright folks over there. I just think their, their focus has gotten uh, traffic safety priorities almost perfectly backwards over the years. So what is NHTSA's MO? Uh, traditionally, it's been to focus on unsafe and defective automobiles. The problem with that focus is that uh, then and now, most crashes are caused by driver behavior. So the policy failure here is that ra relatively rare product defects have been blown out of proportion. Uh, we end up mandating low-value, high-cost safety technology, particularly Generation 1 technology in the post-crash settings, and then we start downplaying everything else and pretend it doesn't exist. Latest example, and uh, before, I, before I say anything more, I'm not defending GM's crappy ignition switch. Uh, it was a major problem, and GM should obviously, uh, you know, uh, uh, bear the burden uh, for releasing a defective product. Uh, but we've seen an incredible amount of media coverage of this, uh, uh, numerous congressional hearings. Problem, again, is that this is likely responsible for a few deaths per year since 2005. Compare that to the 30,000 or so annual deaths on the roads, largely attributable to driver behavior, and I think you start to see the problem. And, you know, this is really where this technology comes in because we can actually start tackling the real problem, and that is that drivers are generally not as good as they think they are. Um, so... What I think NHTSA should do, and I don't think we're going to abolish NHTSA, um, I think uh, going forward, uh, this is what we should keep in mind. Uh, uh, I think NHTSA should recognize that if automob uh, automated vehicles are in fact safer, which everyone believes they will be by the time they get to uh, uh, consumer release, that any policy that results in unnecessary costs or delays will result in additional property damage, injury, and death that would, then would otherwise occur. I think we, you know, I can't emphasize this enough. If our, if our overcautious regulators stand in the way of, of, of letting consumers have access to uh, these vehicles, that means more injuries and deaths. So what I think NHTSA should do, I think they should look at uh, current potential barriers embedded in the federal motor vehicle safety standards uh, that may limit the, the, the technological innovation and uh, consumer uptake. So an example that I, uh, I mentioned earlier is this Tesla petition to, uh, to NHTSA from earlier this year. This had nothing to do with automation, but I think this is a, a good example of what we're likely to see. So Tesla asked uh, NHTSA if they could uh, to, to revise their rules uh, to allow them to comply with uh, uh, Safety Standard 111, which is the mirror rule, uh, with cameras instead of mirrors. Um, you know, uh, even if Tesla were to install cameras that completely replace the viewing function of the mirrors, they would still be required to install mirrors. So there you're adding, uh, you're adding, uh, you're adding stuff to the car that provides no benefits and only costs. So I think step one, what, what should Congress do? And I don't think Congress is really in a, in a good position to do much right now. I think it's, it's, it's too early. But Congress should have NHTSA 
take a look at these existing rules and have them produce a rule-by-rule -rule report on potential uh, conflicts to automated vehicles moving forward. So, like I said, we already have some examples of how not to regulate automated vehicles. This quote here is from uh, D.C. Councilmember Mary Che, who was responding to a, a criticism that I, that I made of her bill in 2012. Um, and here she's claiming that uh, a provision of her bill that required that a licensed driver be present in the driver's seat during uh, automated operation is a necessity to current technology. I don't think that was true then, and it's certainly not true now, and I'll show you why. So here's what happened in Washington, D.C. 2012, this bill was introduced. It originally inclu included provisions that required autonomous vehicles be powered by alternative fuels. It then imposed a new mileage-based tax on all autonomous vehicles. And I, I would point out there is a logic here. So uh, Councilmember Che received a test ride from Google in one of its uh, 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 modified Priuses. Um, so she thought that all these vehicles would necessarily uh, rely on alternative fuels or hybrids. Um, because they, you know, and here's the logic of the, of the second one, because they wouldn't be paying fuel taxes, they're still using the roads, they should bear some responsibility, so we're setting up a new tax system for them. I think that's a very bad way uh, to encourage innovation, and thankfully, uh, uh, it was recognized. So, and the final one was this driver's seat rule. So those first two provisions were removed before final passage. Thankfully, unfortunately, that driver's seat rule remained. And if you look at the April 2014 proposed rules from D.C., uh, the way they interpreted the statute, uh, they want to require that the operator, a test operator in D.C., have a special D.C. driver's license endorsement. Now, the problem with that is that even just looking at a, a solely regional sort of perspective, give us the, the D.C. regional bubble, most people in the D.C. metropolitan area live outside D.C. proper. So if you're restricting uh, uh, test operators to only D.C. residents and only those with D.C. driver's licenses, I think you're, you're really shrinking that pool a lot more than you need to. But, you know, not just, uh, not just to beat up on D.C., California and Michigan uh, have similar driver's seat requirements. So let's move to California. So the latest Google uh, prototype, as Randall showed you, these little pod cars, um, these are low-speed vehicles, so they max out, so they comply with federal uh, low-speed vehicle requirements. Uh, they max out at 25 miles per hour. Uh, but the big thing here is that they would remove the steering wheel and pedals, and these would be fully automated. The driver has no ability, in this case, to retake manual control. But state testing requirements under these uh, the, the California's uh, manufacturer testing rules and uh, these, even the federal low-speed vehicle rules require the installation of steering wheels and all of these other things that frankly aren't necessary uh, for these vehicles that add li little value. So what Google has been forced to do is to reinstall steering wheels and uh, braking and accelerator controls in the vehicle. This is a concrete example of regulations forcing innovators to take a step back. And I hope this is uh, an area where we can, we can learn some, some serious lessons. So as Randall mentioned, uh, NHTSA issued this uh, advance notice of proposed rulemaking on vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle communications technology uh, this past August. So the objective here is to develop a final rule by the end of the decade that would require that all new highway vehicles be enabled with uh, dedicated short-range communications, vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle, uh, communications technologies. 
Um, so this is sort of the, the, the idea is uh, here has nothing to do with automation, at least as NHTSA is currently uh, contemplating it. This is all about pro providing things like advanced collision warnings uh, and things like that. So alerts to drivers, so ignoring any of the automated uh, parts of it. So why do I think this uh, moving in the V2V mandate direction is problematic? Well, the proponents like to argue that this is a low cost compared to the, the full price of the automobile, and that's true. Uh, it's likely to install a, a V2V DSRC box. You're looking at a couple hundred dollars, adding to that, uh, that final price that may be $25,000. But the value is also very low. Uh, this re would rely on a number of, for this to actually work, for the alerts to actually work, uh, it would require that a sufficient number of vehicles on the road have this. So we need large fleet penetration, something like 70% uh, fleet penetration before we have a, uh, a better than chance uh, 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 you know, sort of uh, encounter on the road. Uh, before the, your two cars encountering each other would be better than chance. So that's estimated, given that fleet turnover rates are growing ever longer, we're looking at at least 10 years before we'd be able to reach that. So we're looking at realistically 2030 to see some of these, these major benefits that they're talking about. So there's been a battle going on between the, uh, the intelligent transportation transportation systems folks and the consumer electronics folks for some time now. So since 1999, uh, uh, the DSR, DSRC has received 75 megahertz at the, at the uh, 5.9 gigahertz band, uh, and this is blocked off for transportation purposes. Really, we're using this for things like EasyPass right now, but that is a lot of spectrum for EasyPass. Um, you know, they, they were envisioning uh, in 1999 that uh, by 2005 that we would have the kind of technologies they're talking about mandating by the end of the decade now available to consumers. That hasn't happened. And this battle is ongoing. Uh, the FCC hasn't resolved this, uh, and I think for this reason alone it was premature for NHTSA to move forward with the AMPRM. This also, uh, pursuing the, uh, the mandate with DSRC, also ignores competing and arguably superior technologies. Nokia, for instance, earlier this year announced a modified form of LTE uh, that uh, basically could provide, they argue, superior service and it wouldn't be relying on uh, manufacturers installing equipment in new vehicles. What they're talking about is putting it in cell phones in, uh, that we all have in smartphones. Uh, and given that the fleet turnover for your cell phone is much more rapid than the vehicle fleet turnover, um, we could start realizing some of the benefits that the proponents talk about much more rapidly uh, using a competing technology. And this is something NHTSA, I don't think, is adequately considered. Uh, there are a lot of people in the automated world who argue that this technology is already completely obsolete. Uh, it was obsolete five years ago, it will be obsolete five years from now, and certainly by the time uh, we reach 2030 or 2035, when we can expect to have fully automated vehicles available to consumers, it will be entirely obsolete. And there are some unanswered cybersecurity and liability questions that I don't think NHTSA's adequately addressed. Uh, the, the main cybersecurity concern for the automated uh, industry folks is that they don't, NHTSA doesn't really say how these two systems, so even if you're talking about a V2V system that's completely for generating alerts uh, to drivers, 
how do you potentially wall that off from the automated control systems? They don't know. So the best case scenario, what these automated folks, at least as they see it, is that under the, the V2V mandate as NHTSA currently envisions it, uh, uh, their best case scenario is that they'll be required to install completely useless technology. Uh, if you think about it, getting an alert about a, an advanced collision alert, if you have no control over your vehicle, if a computer is controlling it, probably isn't going to do you much good. So I think the takeaway here should be that we should all be skeptical of those who are claiming that V2V is so valuable that automakers would never install it voluntarily. Uh, and in fact, in, in Europe, in the, in the European Union, automakers there are proceeding uh, down a voluntary path. So it's not that it can't be done, it's that uh, we are choosing not to do, uh, do it that way. So to close, here, um, and these are broad principles, these aren't specific policy recommendations, um, but here's what I think we should keep in mind uh, when going forward if we really want to promote this technology and ultimately have uh, uh, this available to consumers as quickly as possible. So first, recognize and promote the huge potential benefits. Randall talked a lot about that. Safety is a huge one. Uh, but also the mobility benefits to the traditionally uh, mobility disadvantage to the disabled, the elderly, uh, and youth. We should reject the precautionary principle just because it's a new technology, we don't have a lot of data on it, doesn't mean we should shift the burden to the innovators and, uh, and force them to prove that their technology is safer uh, than current manually driven vehicles. I think that's a very good way to prevent uh, uh, consumer uptake. Uh, and like I said earlier, uh, that's a good way to, uh, to cause unnecessary uh, 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 crash deaths and injuries and property damage. We shouldn't presume to know how the technology, which is very proprietary, and the law will evolve. Uh, there aren't court cases on this yet, and there's really no reason to believe that uh, common law torts aren't going to be able to handle this. Um, if we do run into problems in the future, we can address them, but I think starting out with the assumption that let's let this play out is a good one. And this sort of uh, flows into four which is, I think, we should always seek, especially at this early stage, to minimize legislative and regulatory intervention. However well-intentioned policymakers are, um, I think the engineers who are developing this technology right now have some, have some greater insights into, into what it can do, and we should let the innovators innovate. And then finally, I think uh, once we get to the point where we actually have a handle on this technology and we can talk you know, uh, about more concrete policy, we should focus on developing clear and simple rules that preserve technology neutrality. For instance, just because a, a, a company is able to get this to consumers first doesn't mean that that technology is superior. So we shouldn't lock it in and we should, uh, technology neutrality I think is incredibly important uh, if we wish to preserve innovation. So with that, I will close, and uh, thank you very much. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Again, uh, my name is Adam Thier. I'm uh, with the uh, Mercatus Center at George Mason University. I'm here to talk to you today uh, just a few minutes about the privacy and security implications of self-driving cars, which is a topic that's already attracting a lot of attention in public policy circles, including here in Congress because of concerns about uh, the amount of information, the amount of data that will be collected by these intelligent vehicle mm -hmm. technologies. <clears throat> I'm going to start with some very generic remarks about privacy and security, uh, legally and ethically speaking, and then transition into how it applies to driverless car technology or intelligent vehicle technology. I'll be very brief on this. So first and foremost, we need to understand when we talk about privacy and security that these are very relative concepts with extremely amorphous boundaries. 
Not everyone affixes the same value to security or privacy. It's very subjective. Some people are hyper-cautious about security and hypersensitive about their privacy. Others are risk-takers and are maybe somewhat indifferent or more pragmatic about privacy, generally speaking. Secondly, security and privacy norms can and often do evolve very rapidly over time. With highly disruptive technologies, we tend as individuals in a society to panic at first, but then very quickly we move to a sort of new social norms or a new accepted plateau uh, for business and legal and ethical dealings. I've written a lot about this in my recent law review articles and a, a recent book, talking about sort of how we initially had these techno panics, but then after this period of initial resistance to new, new technologies or concern about them, there's sort of gradual adaptation and then eventual assimilation. It's not to say that it's not potentially a little bit gut-wrenching along the way. It's just to say that we usually do adjust our norms in the privacy and security sense. And this was just as true a century ago for the first cars that came along as it will be today as these new uh, smart cars start to populate our roadways. Third point I want to make is that for almost every perceived privacy harm or concern that exists, there is a corresponding consumer benefit that may sometimes outweigh the privacy or security concern. We certainly see this at work already today with the broader internet, and we will see it at work with regards to intelligent vehicles. Compare, for example, the current telematics that are on board many vehicles that allow locational tracking to the sort of smartphone tracking that we know happens all the time with the pockets, uh, with, the, with, the, uh, with the smartphones that are in our pockets today. Um, obviously, tracking, whether it's on this device or in your car, raises privacy concerns, very legitimate ones but it also has enormous benefits. It enables us to get to where we want to go more easily, to know what the traffic looks like, and a whole host of other uh, advantages. So this concern about tracking may dissipate over time with vehicle technology the same way it has for smartphones, although not entirely, obviously. Fourth, as it pertains to intelligent vehicle technologies, today's privacy and security concerns and considerations are certainly not the same as yesterday's, and they're almost certainly, certainly not going to be the same as tomorrow's. What I mean by that is that today's intelligent vehicle technology, um, obviously it raises some of these concerns about things like location, so on and so forth, um, but it won't necessarily be the same tomorrow, especially if it's true, as Randall and Mark pointed out, that we may move from a world where the automobile is a final good today that we actually buy and it's ours, we possess it, it's our property, to a world where automobiles just become another service. It's something that maybe we rent by the hour. It's a combination of something like Uber and Zipcar. Uh, sort of a robotic chauffeur that comes and gets us as, as needed. So what happens in that world is that potentially the privacy concerns that we have today and cars that we own and the data that's collected is all about us maybe shifts as we're just on board a robotic chauffeur that is, again, more like Uber or Zipcar, and maybe there's less information being collected about us in that context. So again, the privacy considerations will probably evolve, and maybe in that future world, security is a bigger concern than privacy. It remains to be seen. Fifth, and this is probably the most important point I'll try to make here today, which is that any privacy and security solutions that we propose must take into account the realities I've just discussed and try to balance the many different values that are at stake so that we don't derail beneficial, life-saving innovation. Simply put, there are no silver bullet solutions to privacy and security concerns. There will always be difficulties with these concerns, but we have to take into account the fact that these values do change over time and that it's very difficult sometimes for law or regulation to keep pace with the pace of technological change. 
What I believe we instead need, and what I've written about in my recent uh, work on uh, driverless car technology, is to borrow a phrase from University of Chicago legal scholar Richard Epstein, we need simple rules for a complex world. We need to rely on existing legal principles and systems uh, to solve these complex problems over time as these cases and controversies develop. That can be in, uh, include, first and foremost, contracts and the enforcement of terms of service arrangements between uh, users of these technologies and their developers. It can, can include, most, more notably, as Mark already mentioned, uh, common law and torts and products liability. Uh, these are systems that have evolved over time to accommodate these things. In fact, I want to highly recommend to you a wonderful new paper from the Brookings Institution by John Villasenor of UCLA. He wrote in this paper about this issue of product liability and autonomous car technology that, quote, when confronted with new and often complex questions involving products liability, courts have generally gotten things right. Products liability law has been highly adaptive to the many new technologies that have emerged in recent decades, and it will be quite capable of adapting to emerging autonomous vehicle technology as the need arises. I wholeheartedly agree with that. And again, it may be that those liability norms, as well as privacy considerations, these things change or evolve as cars do move from the final good they are today that we own to a service. Economists use the term least cost avoider, which basically means in the field of law and economics, liability is usually affixed to the person who can most easily avoid the harm. This is called least cost avoider principle. In our traditional world of automobiles, you the drivers, we all the drivers, we were the least cost avoider. We were expected to be the ones where liability was affixed because we were the ones that would probably be most responsible for accidents or able to avoid them. That may shift as cars become services. And as they do, it may be that the intelligent vehicle car developers and technology providers know more and more about at first how we drive our cars and then how our cars drive themselves. And in the process, liability moves up to a different level namely that of the service provider or the technology provider. Again, it remains to be seen. The other thing that needs to happen in the short term to address privacy and security concerns is that we need to continue efforts that are already underway to sort of bake in these principles, so-called privacy by design or security by design. This is a very beneficial form of sort of industry collaborative efforts along with various concerned stakeholders where we come up with best practices or codes of conduct for how to better do things, and in this case, how to create better privacy and security practices. These efforts are already underway. GAO uh, came up with a study last year of 10 smart car technology uh, developers and noted that they were all moving in various degrees and at various speeds to provide better best practices or privacy and security by design principles. There are organizations such as the Future of Privacy Forum that have already developed wonderful best practices on this front, and there are private uh, organizations and many uh, automobile manufacturers who are working together to come up with these, th these privacy by design principles. What are the principles? They're things like data collection minimization or limitations about making sure they don't collect more data than is absolutely necessary to achieve the goals of operating the vehicle or, or, or to get you where you need to go. Um, it's about things like limited sharing of data with third parties. Um, you may want to opt in to do that, but maybe you don't want to do that. Uh, another best practice is transparency about not all just existing data collection and use practices, but also clear consent for new types of uses of the data that is being collected by our vehicles. So again, hopefully privacy and security advocates will continue to work with automobile companies and smart car technology developers to come up with these best practices and to try to apply them more broadly as these technologies evolve. Now at this point, we need to have a, a question, you know, we're here in 
Congress, shouldn't there be some minimal legal standards? So there shouldn't there be some legislative baseline or maybe some sort of state-based regulation here? If these principles are so good, why not enshrine them into law? And that idea has been proposed. I would just say to that point again that things are moving very, very rapidly on this front. The privacy and security concerns are developing so rapidly, in fact, that the issues seem to change almost every 18 months to two years about what the primary concern is. As I pointed out, it could change again in the next couple of years. I fear, therefore, that any legislative uh, mandate that we put down will obviously be obsolete fairly quickly. Um, I also fear that it potentially freezes out certain types of innovation. What I don't want is a sort of one-size-fits-all approach to this. Again, there are people who are willing to be more risky in the, what they do in life and to maybe share more of their data and aren't quite as concerned about this. Some of us are going to want not just robotic chauffeurs, we're going to want sort of a rolling entertainment system, you know, and we're going to want to be sharing information real-time with all sorts of services and sites and whatever else. So I think in agreement with Randall and with Mark, what they've already noted, it's better to rely on sort of a wait-and-see approach to this and see what sort of serious and persistent problems are out there or develop that might require some form of additional legislation regulation, regulation, but don't lead with preemptive precautionary-based approaches. The better approach, uh, to borrow a phrase from my recent book, um, is to rely on permissionless innovation as being the default, the same default that we've had for the internet economy, where generally speaking, Ongoing experimentation with new technologies has been generally allowed as the default position, and then we've waited to see what serious problems continue to exist and tried to address them one by one. So in sum, one size most definitely does not fit all. We need a flexible, sort of layered approach of many different types of solutions. Let me make one final point and I'll wrap up. When it comes to privacy and security considerations, specifically privacy considerations of intelligent vehicle technologies, Special consideration must be paid to, this, to the role of government actions as it pertains to these technologies. There is certainly the possibility that governments may want to access a lot of the information that's being collected by these vehicles and by these intelligent vehicle technologies. And whereas many of the privacy and security concerns that relate to the private data collection uh, that may take place in these vehicles are serious, they're not nearly as serious as governmental data collection. Obviously, private entities cannot fine or tax you and or imprison you or anything else, they lack the coercive power of governments. Um, and it's also it's possible to avoid many of these private data collection uh, systems in private vehicles, but government may try to cast a wider net, collect all this information for whatever purpose. Therefore, when government seeks to access privately held data collected by these new intelligent vehicle technologies, strong constitutional and statutory protection should apply. Specifically, we need stronger Fourth Amendment constraints, and even more specifically, we need the courts to revisit the so-called third-party third party doctrine, which holds that individuals sacrifice their Fourth Amendment interest in their personal information when it is divulged to a third party who may be collecting it for other purposes, even when that third party has promised to safeguard that data. This is why the current fight that's unfolding about this technology is so important for these next generation of driverless car and intelligent vehicle technology. You may be following the fight between our government or some people in it and Apple and Google about encryption standards for our smartphones. That foreshadows the debate to come over intelligent vehicle technologies and it's why I hope that battle today is won by Apple and Google and other technology providers who are seeking to provide additional layers of protection for those people who want it. 
and trying to safeguard that data and not make it so easy for governments to access for whatever purpose. Now, there may be some good reasons for governments to access that information on occasion, but they should have a warrant, they should have probable cause, and so on and so forth. I won't get any deeper into that. It's just to say that let's recall that when we deal with privacy and security implications, we understand that that's probably the far more serious pressing issue today than just run-of-the-mill private sector data collection, which will have many beneficial uh, other uses. So with that, I'll wrap up, and I'll also be happy to take questions. Thanks.